0: John chapter 13 is where we are going to be uh, this morning. Let me read the first couple of verses, and then we'll just pray and ask God to help us. So John chapter 13, John's in the New Testament, so kind of the second half of your Bible there. Let me, let me just read this for us. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Let's pray. Just ask God to help us here this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. And God... uh, It's been such a gift already just to sing and to be reminded of what you have done on our behalf. And now, God, we're going to see just in this passage so beautifully, uh, God, your heart for your people. And, um, God, I just pray that you in this moment um, would speak to us by the power of your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you just remove distractions and just remove noise as we as we settle into this text God um, help us to clearly see you help us to clearly hear from you Um, God so that our affection for you might be stirred up but God so that our love for others would also be stirred up and God that we would not just be hearers of the word this morning but God that we would just obey the command that you give us in this to do like you have done for us And God, we can't go out there and do that on our own power, our own might, and our own strength. So we need your spirit. I want to invite you, if you're in the room or if you're listening online, uh, just take just a moment. And just, just that prayer, just that prayer alone, just God, would you speak to me and allow me to hear you clearly? Let's just pray that over yourself and for yourself right now. And I want to ask if you would, if you would just pray for me. Uh, It's tough to teach these texts and ask people to do these things when you can see just such a huge chasm in your own life where you don't do those things. And so um, I'm going to ask God to, to close that gap in my own life this morning and just pray that God would control me, that God would just cover me, that God might even interrupt the things that I've planned to say. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we get to chapter 13 in John, uh, the shot clock on Jesus' life has started. The, the plan and the purpose of what Jesus came to earth for is now becoming more and more in focus. And the disciples They don't really feel the tension in this moment, which is kind of usual for the disciples. They don't always kind of know what's going on. But Jesus knows it. He can see it. Um, He knows that the clock is counting down. In fact, within 24 hours of the story that we're going to see, Jesus is dead. And I don't know if you can kind of imagine that, you know, when we talk about the Bible out here, we, we always talk about try to put yourself in the story, I mean, engage your imagination in what you're, in what you're reading and what you're hearing, but, but you're there, you're at dinner with friends, you're at the table, you're sitting there, you're in a feast, and you know that within 24 hours, I'm dead. This is it. This is kind of my, my last meal with my, with my closest friends. So if that's you how, how do you, how are you showing up to this dinner? You're just going to order the calamari and like no big deal, not even just mention it? Who's there at the, at the table? What, what do you want to talk to them about? What, what are the things that you want to make sure they know? That, like if you don't miss this, what, what, what is the thing that you want to make sure that is clearly communicated at this last meal, because that's what Jesus has on his mind. Just imagine that he, he sees the, the plan of God un, unfolding. He knows the turning point of human history is right around the corner. And he's just there with his guys and they think, well, oh, it's just another dinner. Um, the other gospel writers tell us a little bit more about the Lord's Supper. John kind of takes a little bit of a different angle, but they're there celebrating together what's known as the, as the Passover meal. They're there to remember uh, when God delivered his people from being enslaved to the nation of Egypt. Uh, you can find that story in the book of Exodus if you're not familiar with what that story is. And I would just encourage you uh, this week to spend a little time in the book of Exodus. It's a really pivotal story uh, just in the, in the story of God and the story of God's people. But, but the, the short version is the people of God were slave labor in the nation of Egypt uh, working for Pharaoh. And they, would, they cried out. And God raises up a man named Moses to lead the people to freedom. And the pinnacle moment of the story is the night the angel of, the death, sho- angel of death shows up. And God says, this is going to be a really brutal night for most families. But he gives specific instructions to his people And that night, a lot of lambs lost their lives so that human lives might be spared and so that death might pass over them where that sign of faith was over the doors. And through all of Egypt that night, there's shrieking and wailing and crying and weeping because the firstborn that night had died except for the houses that had the sign that said, God, in your wrath, remember mercy, please pass over us. Those lives were spared. And when that happened, The heart of Pharaoh cracked and deliverance for God's people came and the story of redemption and salvation of God's people is unfolding. And the people of God never forgot that night. So every year there's a Passover meal and that meal was to commemorate or to remember that night and how awful and how dark it was. But at the same time, how merciful God was to every single person who put their faith and confidence in him. So so as Jesus knows the time is near for him, the the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as as he knows it's time for him, the unblemished lamb, to lose his life, that meal is being celebrated. And it's a meal that these guys would have had numerous times, ever since they they were kids. It's completely ordinary, completely predictable Passover meal. That's what they're thinking. So Jesus is there at the table. He's there with his closest friends. These are the guys who had followed him in his earthly ministry. And he's also there with an enemy, which is a crazy thought. Again, it's your last meal. It's your last meal on planet Earth. You can choose anybody to be there. And there is his enemy. When we host a dinner party, I mean, you're normally thinking, okay, I want to have a really special meal. I want to have a special night. I want to have a special time. So I want just only certain people there. I want only kind of my favorite people there. No, no one's like, hey, we're going to have a dinner party. I need to just hunt down all the people who have stabbed me in the back. I hope they can make it tonight. Let me just go through the list of all the people I fight on Facebook. Maybe I could have them over. No. Jesus is at the table with friends and, and enemies. It's just a wild thought that there are enemies at the table of God. And we're going to see in this story, it's because the kingdom of God, the story of God, is the kind of kingdom, the kind of story where Jesus would sit with his adversary because there's something different about the kingdom of God, because there's something different about this king. God isn't intimidated by his enemies, God doesn't shut the door on his people just because, in their own heart, they intend to do him harm. It, it's not cancel culture with Jesus, it's a commitment culture. And in in verse 1, John gives a key to this whole upper room discourse. John gives the key that kind of unlocks how all of this works. He says in verse 1, he says that Jesus loved them to the end. And you might just kind of glance over it like that phrase might not kind of stick out to you, but but let me tell you what john 's doing there as, as an author he 's yes, referring to the end of jesus life, which is just right around the corner, but there 's also a deeper meaning there that, that john 's trying to show us about this kind of love that Jesus has for his people. It, it means that he loved them completely. He loved them finally to the uttermost, unto to death. The, the root word is this word telos, where, where uh, if we, we're going to see it in just a moment, or if you remember when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out to telestai, it is finished. So it's, it's like the most complete, finished, to the death, to the uttermost kind of love that Jesus has for the men around this table. And we're going to see they're disobedient, they're confused, in the next 24 hours they will reject, they will betray him, and even still Jesus loved them to the end, which teaches us that our incentive to love others is the love that Jesus shows to us, even when, especially when we fall short. So Jesus chooses commitment culture with his people over, over cancel culture. And listen, I'm all for accountability when, when there's someone who's failed in their responsibility as a, as a leader or in a particular role and it causes pain and suffering in others that needs to be dealt with. And I'm not talking about relationships that are dangerous or grossly unhealthy, but we're so quick to throw people away. And commitment also does not mean we're just sweeping everything under the rug, but it means that you're staying with you even when you fall short of his glory. That's what Jesus has done. There's so much of the, of the story that reveals some things in the church where we've kind of been an, an infected by culture and we don't do things the way that Jesus does them. We do them the way that the world around us does them. And you can just ask church, how do we treat our enemies? Because unfortunately, we treat them the same way that the world treats their enemies. But Jesus is showing us a different way. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm What's going down at this table right now with me, in this room right now? He's saying it's so much more powerful than all your evil intentions that you have. It's so much more powerful than all the fears that you have. It's so much more powerful than your own selfish agenda that you have. And he can say that because the text tells us Jesus knows I have all authority And I have all power, and I know who I am, and I know whose I am, and I know that nothing can thwart God's ultimate plan, and my whole life is in the Father's loving and wise care. So I don't mind you being here. I know exactly what you're going to do. I know exactly what's going to happen to me. I know who I am. I know whose I am. Jesus teaches us that our enemies are a footnote in the sovereign and perfect plan of our Father for our lives, and because of that, we trust him. And because of that, we can actually love our enemies. It's just such a crazy, grace-filled, God-glorifying way of thinking and living. And it comes ultimately from a place of being secure in who you are in God and ultimately whose you are. Look back again at verse 3 because this is so just important. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus was a believer in the sovereignty of God. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, we're going to see in just a moment Jesus do something that looks weak, but there's actually a tremendous amount of strength in his serving. And for us, what it teaches us is that we should work or serve or love from a position, not for a position. Jesus is working from his identity, not for his identity. There's an author named Henry Nowen, and he talks about the five lies of identity, because what Jesus has here is a security in who he is. But we walk around in the world with a lot of insecurity about who we are, and it's why we do some of the things that we do, even when we know, ah, this is not what I should be doing. But this author, Henry Nowen, he talks about the five lies of identity, and they're this. One, I am what I have. Two, I am what I do. I am what other people say or think of me. I am nothing more than my worst moment. I am nothing less than my best moment. That's how most people decide who they are or come to the place of who they are, and that's how they show up in the world. But for the Jesus follower, we have something far greater than those lies. We have the truth that your worth and your identity is fixed and determined by God. And that's why Jesus is able to do this radical thing here, because he knows that. What Jesus is teaching us here is that knowing who I am or whose I am and my worth and value as a son or daughter is the basis for extraordinary acts of service. I've mentioned this in the past, but uh, uh, last year, it was March of uh, 2020, I think, uh, uh, Chuck Bishop, one of our elders, Sean Warren, one of our pastors here, uh, we went and spent some time with some global partners that we have in Dominican Republic and in Haiti. And we were sitting down with Rod Davis, who leads this ministry work that's happening in Dominican Republic, and we, he, we were just getting his whole story of how he just kind of uprooted his whole family when they were very young and just moved kind of sight unseen to to the worst barrio in all of Dominican Republic to start to do this work of school and employment for for. People and just kind of doing the, starting a church, all this stuff, and so I just was really kind of shocked. And I was asking him, I said, "Well, how has uh, your definition of?" love changed or grown since you started doing this work? Because it's one thing to have like an idea of what it is to love others. But when you start to do this kind of thing, like how's that changed in your life? And, and, And he said, he said, the greater my capacity to understand God's love for me, meaning like the more I know that I am loved by God, the greater the capacity I have to love others. Because he just told story after story after story about how we didn't have any food and we were starving and we were, my kids were sick and I was sick. And there was just thing after thing after thing. I was like, man, how in the world do you keep doing this? He said, the deeper I would go in understanding how deeply I was loved by God, the deeper I could go to love others. Look at verse 4 and 5. And as we're reading this, I, I want you to, this is the place where I want you to really kind of engage your, your mind Because this is such a beautiful picture, we we have to be able to see it. Look at verse. Look at verse four. So this is Jesus. He got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing. So it was kind of like a robe or like a tunic that he would have. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel. That was wrapped around him. Author Paul Miller talks about this scene. He says, you really need to slow down and zoom in and see what's happening here. Uh, we have that picture from Leonardo da Vinci that looks at uh, all the disciples are just at a long table And Jesus is in the middle and they're kind of on either end and they're eating there. But really, uh, what this table would have looked like, there was a table that uh, they would have adopted from Roman culture, but it was kind of in the shape of a U. So there would be some people here and then there would be some people here and there'd be be some people here. And rather than sitting up on chairs, they would be actually kind of laying down uh, and they would be leaning and kind of reclining on each other. And you'd be leaning kind of on the person towards your left because you ate with your right hand. And then your feet would kind Kind of stick out the bottom of the of the thing, so I'm going to try to do this. Uh, but they would be kind of leaning like like this. This is how you would eat. Which, yes, this is how my kids eat in the living room. This is how this is how you eat, but you'd be leaning on each other, kind of as you ate. So for Jesus to get up, gets gets climbs up out of his position, takes his tunic off, his robe off picks up a a towel, which would have been kind of like an apron, like a server's apron type of thing. And now Jesus is on the floor. He's the rabbi. He's the teacher. He's the one who is supposed to lead this new kingdom. The floor is dirty. The feet are gnarly and dirty. No socks, no shoes, no paved roads. Everywhere you go, it's hot, sweaty. And Jesus takes the basin he takes a towel. He's on the floor. He's on the floor washing feet. The rabbi, the master, is doing this. In this culture, washing feet was a way of saying, welcome home. And Jesus is going around the table and he's washing feet and he's essentially saying, To these men, welcome home. And he gets to Peter. And if you're not familiar with who Peter is in the Bible, you got to read about him. He's great. But Peter just starts doing Peter things. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you. Have no part with me. It gets to Peter. Peter's got a big presentation to make in front of everybody. Because this is what Peter does. He says, You are not gonna wash my feet. Peter has a kind of a weird track record with Jesus. He has not quite figured out that you don't get to tell the Son of God what he's gonna do. And and you know the thing is, Jesus, he could have just really sat at this table and enjoyed this last meal. I mean, he could have had one of the other guys wash the feet. I mean, have them do something for once in a while. But he takes off his robe, he picks up the towel, and he says to them loud and clear immediately, I'm a servant. Because that's what a servant would do. They'd wash feet. Jesus takes his divine prerogative from heaven off and he puts on the towel of human Earthly service. It's a picture of the cross and resurrection. One commentator says the simplest explanation of the foot washing is that Jesus performed this servant's task to prophesy symbolically that he was about to be humiliated in death. Okay, so why doesn't Peter understand this? Now, if you come over to my house, which you're all welcome anytime, and I start doing this to you, it's going to get weird. It's going to be awkward. And you're not going to get it. But, but foot washing here culturally is not weird. It was expected. It was necessary. There, there's hygiene that's involved in it. It was, it was important. That's not why Peter is reacting this way. The concept of foot washing doesn't confuse him. So sometimes there would be a basin and a towel available for you to wash your own feet. Or sometimes there would be a slave or a, or a servant. But never, ever would a master of the house or a disciple's teacher stoop so low to wash feet. That would never happen. But Jesus is saying, you've got to get this picture, and you've got to get this tactile, hands-on parable before I go. Yes, I know your feet are dirty. Yes, I know it can be a place of infection. Yes, I know how gross it is. Yes, I know how demeaning this is. Yes, I know how low I am right now. But I know what this is, and that's why I'm on the floor doing this for you. And that's where you see Peter come in and say, no, no, you, can't. you cannot do this. In in Luke's gospel, it tells us that these guys were actually just having an argument over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They're having this conversation because they're all pumped up because it looks like their guy is about to come in and overthrow the government and set up his rule and reign. And, and, and we have uh, this expected Messiah. What, what we've expected him to do all along is finally going to get set up. It looks like there's going to be some cabinet seats available. And so these guys are in an argument over, well, who do you think is going to get the right hand? Who do you think is going to be his guys? Who, who do you think is going to rule along with him? And what Jesus is doing as he's washing feet and he's saying, listen, you're so focused on building a brand, I'm trying to build my kingdom. You want the throne, but I'm offering you a towel because that's how my kingdom is. The way of Jesus means that you embrace the cross before we receive the crown. I saw somebody wrote recently, we all want leadership but if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. Jesus is saying, you want to be a part of my kingdom? This is what it looks like. And, and he is pointing forward because as degrading, as, humility, as uh, humiliating, as beneath Jesus, the disciples feel like foot washing is. It's about to get even more real. Because in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, mocked, beaten, spit on, humiliated, stripped naked, hauled out to a garbage dump outside of town, and be publicly executed in the most humiliating and degrading and dehumanizing way that had ever been invented. And you know what Jesus is going to say in that moment in response to all of that? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In verse 8, Peter, when he says, no, no, he's using the most emphatic phrase that he can. It's, he's essentially saying, you will never, you will, you will not, not wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you cannot have any fellowship with me. me. Meaning, if I can't forgive your sins, you cannot have my presence and power in your life. The salvation that Jesus offers is free or it is nothing. We cannot earn the cleansing. He's saying, let yourself be loved. Let yourself be served by Jesus. Give in. Be washed simply because Jesus wants to wash us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because it's who he is. The unearned forgiveness of sins is the foundation of our relationship with Jesus. Or there will never be a firm foundation or good relation with Jesus or with his Father. And that might be hard on your pride, but it is medicine for our soul. And so for Peter to reject Jesus washing his feet is to reject Jesus' total approach to ministry. The gospel is you must first receive from Jesus. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It is by the unearned favor of God that faith is supplied to you. And out of that, because of that, motivated by that, we love and serve others the way that Jesus has loved and served us. And this rattles these guys and it disrupts them because they were ready to fight for a throne, not for a towel. And Peter is is so extreme. Verse 9, okay, all right. Well, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus says, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. He says, Peter, you've been washed from your sin as a result of you knowing who I am, as a result of your confession and seeing who I am. But this is a touch-up here for you. Look at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set... I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that while you are arguing about who is greater, you should be focused on who can serve the most. Because that's the point of this object lesson. In the kingdom of God, humility comes before honor. Christ was humbled before he was exalted, the cross comes before the crown. And when Jesus removes his cloak and he puts on the towel, it's a picture of what Jesus wants us to do with what he's given us. It's not wrong to have position or power or means or authority. Jesus has all of those things. That's not the issue. The issue is when we cannot lay those things down and take up a towel to serve others. The picture of taking off the outer garment is to serve a deeper picture of what it looks like when I posture myself in a place of service, and I'm not just trying to promote myself. If we fast forward in Peter's life, Peter, this lesson would stick with him, because he would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, he would say, clothe yourself with humility. I just imagine his mind going to that place where he saw Jesus remove his clothes and peter says dress up in humility towards one another because god opposes the proud and peter's like i know what that feels like cuz i was a proud man but he gives grace he gives favor to the humble It's a picture of Jesus taking the power and position and influence that he has and using it for the greater good of someone else. Power and authority in and of itself is not bad. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Because everything in our world says, use all that you have for self-preservation. But the gospel is that, no, it's actually dying to yourself. That's the way of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, Whoever wants to have their life come after me. They must deny themselves. It's not a message that you're going to hear in the world. It's not a message that culture is trying to bombard you with. Deny yourself? No, no, no. That's not the way. But Jesus says, this is the way. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? You have everything yet forfeit their soul. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus, in just a little bit, is going to put himself in harm's way for them, which is why he washes their feet. And church, when we do this, the world sees and takes notice, and we shine all the attention on Jesus. That's what we were built for. Redemption, uh, as a church, can be a lot of things. There's a lot of names that get attached to, to this church, uh, you can recognize us as an organization. Sometimes you'll hear the word megachurch, which is kind of a weird word. A corporation, a business. Sometimes we'll say people will say, well, church is just a big machine. But at the end of the day, what church is, what we are, is a family. a A blood-bought family of servants. Every single one of us. And we might have... Titles and roles that help us kind of figure out the ways in which we serve, but our greatest title that we can have is servant because our master was the greatest servant to all, and we are not greater than our master. So, we, church, are a family of footwashers. That's who we are. We're a family of footwashers, and we glory in that. We celebrate that because Jesus is showing us that there's nothing better than that so that the world will know that Jesus is king over all and that he loves them and that he gave his life for them. One commentator talking about this has said, Jesus' foot washing is not only a perfect depiction of what God has done for us in Jesus' atoning work and of what God continues to do for us by applying for us in Jesus' atoning work to us through word and sacraments, church and prayer. It also shows disciples how they can live their lives in the most blessed possible way, in mutual service, in humble submission, in forgiveness and patience towards one another. And he describes what that looks like, good listening and conversation, good hospitality with visitors and guests, good attention to customers and clients and students and colleagues in business and work, good presence with spouse and children, good being there at your service as a whole way of life these and hundreds of other daily responsibilities and privileges are wonderfully pictured by jesus footwashing gift jesus footwashing not only teaches the christian gospel but it also teaches the christian ethic i have a friend named giovanni I was introduced to him um, with Tyler. He's a, he's a pastor in Italy, uh, and he's been a pastor in Italy for over 50 years. He's planted churches all over the country, and he's worked extensively uh, for, with re- relational reconciliation with the Catholic Church. So if you're not familiar with uh, just kind of the, the, that relationship in the past between Protestants and Catholics in the nation of, of Italy, there was a, there's quite a bit of persecution from the Catholic Church to uh, the two Protestants. I kind of grew up in a world uh, like that. And so this man works really hard for relational reconciliation, which, as you can imagine, is very difficult because you're pushing back on just years and years and years, decades uh, of just this kind of tension between the two. And I was asking him, just, you know, give me just kind of like your heart behind that. Like, why, why, are you do, why, why are you doing that? Why that work? What's the heart behind it? Like, how, how in the world do you go about doing that? And he shared this story, and he made this phrase, and I'm ne- I'll never forget this phrase, but he said, love starts at the feet. Love starts at the low, low place. And we think so often, if I could just change their mind, If I could just change their mind, if I could out-argue them, if you're married, have you ever won, like, just, like, out-arguing your spouse? Like, I finally, my superior argument has won the day. Romantic. I'm preaching to myself right now. (laughs) But we think, if I could just prove my point, because we have a top-down view uh, of the way we think that we should show up as the church. We have this way, if I can prove my superior way of thinking about how the world should work, that's what will bring about that change. That's what I'm required to do as the church. And while it is true that God's way of living is is the best and the most brilliant and God's truth is the truth, the way that the world sees and knows that is through our humble, costly, self-sacrificing love and service to one another because love starts at the feet. Church, I mean, I, listen, we have been arguing with each other for the past year and a half. Has it made anything better? Look at not, not just this church. Look at the church out there. Arguing about everything. Pick it. We'll argue it about it. So how about we switch it up a little bit? How about we just start washing feet? Jesus left the table. He left his last meal for you. He wants you to know he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he put on the towel of a servant and washed feet in the last few hours of his life. He could have done anything, but he felt like this was the most important thing. John the Baptist, if you remember earlier in this gospel, he says, John the Baptist, who lives the most radical ministry life, gives up everything, eats bugs, he says, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. And Jesus switches even that up, turns that upside down and washes their feet. Even Judas, Jesus washes his enemy's feet. And then he goes back to the table and he says, listen, what I just did, that's the example of how all this works. Look at verse 17. Well, he, says, he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do He's saying, look, I'm displaying my relationship with you And how your relationship with each other should function. And if you understand what I've just done for you, you'll be so deeply blessed if you just put it into practice. If you want to be great, understand how I define greatness. He says, put your outer coverings aside. Put all the stuff that you dress yourself up in, everything you hide behind, everything you use to build yourself up, and wash each other's feet. And and I mean, it gets... Real practical for us. And at the end of the month, we're going to have a ministry fair here. So out there in the lobby, you're going to be able to see all the different ways that you can serve and wash feet here at this church. It could be that your towel and your basin is the ability to, to give. God might have blessed you in that way. That might be the way that you wash feet. You, you might have a, a ministry of, of prayer. There are dear, 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 dear saints in this church who all they do is just pray for this church. They pray for us. They just pray for all the needs and the things that are happening in this church. That might be your talent and basin, in your work, in your school, with your kids, and your spouse. Tom Schrader, the founding pastor, he said, everyone likes the idea of being a servant until they're treated like one. But Paul would write in Philippians. He said, "Look, if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete. And being like-minded, have the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than ourselves. Each each of you should look not to your own interests." but also to the interests of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the uh, the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way of the kingdom is upside down. If you want to be first, wash somebody else's feet. Jesus is saying there's no job or position too low because he's saying, look, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for my family. The kingdom is not about being at the head of the table. It's about washing feet. Imagine if you're one of these guys, you're being able to tell the story On the last night, Jesus washed my feet and it could be, it could be for you today as we close that Jesus welcomes you home. It could be today that he's extending to you I want to wash you. I want to make you clean. Not that you've earned it. Not that it's a reward for your behavior. But Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And I'm moving towards you in acceptance. I'm moving towards you in, in love. It's a picture of how we do life around the table of God. We receive from him. He serves us. And then with him in perfect love and mercy and grace as he moves towards us. And then we see in the cross how he ultimately does that. And we respond in the same way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this, this text. Thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for um, the picture that we see in this room, the picture that we, that we see. God, thank you even more than that, that you invite us into that kind of life. You, you invite us into that blessed life where we are secure in who we are and, and whose we are because of what you have done and so we can be secure in the radical ways in which you call us to lay our life down and to love others and so God I am praying that you would make us, make me a people who are resolved in what is true about you and radical in our love towards one another and towards the world God we need you for that It's not by our might, not by our power, but by your spirit. So God, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you so that we can wash feet. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.